So we are going to be back in Hosea, and uh, for those of you who weren't with us when we started, we started back in September, so it's been a little while. We took a break for Christmas, break for Easter. Uh, Hosea is a small book in the Old Testament. That's the name of a prophet, Hosea. And uh, it was uh, at a time when God's people were in a lot of trouble. Uh, they were in a lot of sin, idolatry, and so God uh, spoke to Hosea and gave him some things to do and some things to say in the hopes of waking sort of God's people up to the reality of their situation. The main thing that he was called to do, the kind of shocking thing, is that God called Hosea to go and marry an unfaithful woman, is how he called it. Uh, a local prostitute is who Hosea went and married. And the point of this marriage was to give a, a real-life visual picture for the people of God that, look, that this kind of unfaithfulness is true in your life. And so God called Hosea to love this woman, even though her name was Gomer, even though she was unfaithful to him, and even in his marriage unfaithful, and yet he continued to love her. And again, that was supposed to be a picture of God's love for his, his people. It's really a heartbreaking and beautiful story. Uh, it took the first three chapters of Hosea to tell that story. And from that point onward, God has been sort of using that story to uh, highlight, to bring insight into the, the lives of faith of the people. And so that's where we've been for the last little while. God has been exposing the hard-heartedness of his people and us, been exposing the idolatry. It's been a wake-up call for us to see that faithfulness cannot only be skin deep and that God isn't playing around when it comes to his holiness when it comes to the reputation of his name, and when it comes to the covenant that he has established uh, with his people. So we are going to dive back in. We have just three weeks left, and so I thought I'd give you just kind of the roadmap of what we're going to look at over the next three weeks. Uh, they're really the major themes of the book that we find right at the end of the book. So today, April 16th, we're looking at the death of Israel. Next week, uh, we're going to see the resurrection of Israel. And then we're going to end April 30th with the restoration of Israel, which is really the major theme of the book. So today we're in chapter 12, verse 7, and uh, I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to pull out uh, a lot of the themes and the ideas that we see in it. We're kind of just jumping right back into where we left off. So this is God describing, as he did kind of the whole book, the, the sinfulness of the people, the corruption of the people. So just get ready for more of that. Uh, so here's, here's verse 7. Israel, a merchant in whose hands are fal false balances. He loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt I will again make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation. So his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Chapter 13, when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, 
They shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like the smoke from a window. We'll stop there. So, God's word to us this morning, filled with some very heavy images, as is true for a lot of Hosea. Uh, We are going to have two main points this morning, and the first one is this. Uh, Israel is dead. We see it in black and white, uh, chapter 13, verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. Okay, Ephraim and Israel, just different name for the people of God. It's saying there very clearly, they were worshiping Baal, they were in idolatry, and they died. I think the question that we need to ask is, what does Hosea mean? What does God mean by died? Because clearly, all the people of God were not like laying down dead. They were all walking around, they were living their lives. So this can't be talking about immediate physical death. Uh, It's talking about spiritual death, death of the soul, which may sound like not as big a deal, Uh, because, you know, the soul is something that's a little more difficult to conceptualize, a little more difficult to imagine. Death of the body, we know what that is. We know that's a big deal. But actually, the death of the soul is far worse than the death of the body. Jesus makes this clear uh, in the book of Matthew. It's recorded him talking about this. Here's Matthew 10, 28. He says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so the point that he's making is that the death of the body is bad. We, we know that. It's usually associated with pain, uh, with suffering, with fear. But the death of the soul is far worse because it's all of those things times eternity. That's what, that's what hell is, right? Suffering for eternity, death for eternity. The challenge, though, is that Human beings can be barreling headlong towards infinite darkness and eternal death, but still feel very much alive. That's what's been happening to the Israelites. When this word comes down to them, you're dead, you're, all these warnings, they, they don't feel that way. God's been trying to tell them, look, even, even though you're, you're calling yourselves my people, even though you're doing festivals, even though you're going to the temple, even though you feel very alive, you're, you're full of sin. You're full of death. It's like going to the doctor and the doctor's saying to you, look, we, we did some test results. Your cholesterol is, is crazy. I mean, you need, you need to stop. But you need to stop smoking three packs a day. You need to stop drinking so much. You need to stop eating all these fatty foods. And I'm sure that there are patients who would look at the doctor and say, doc, I feel really good. Right? I feel fine. I hit McDonald's on the way in. I got some fries. Like, I, I don't know what you're saying. I don't feel dead. I feel very much alive. Except now, if you look clearly in our text, God isn't just saying to them, look, you're sick, you're on life support, you're dying. He's saying you are dead. Which, there's been a lot of shocking statements in Hosea, but this is right at the top. This is, this is the climax of the tragedy of Israel. This is the moment where hundreds and thousands of people in the northern kingdom were, were meant to stop and consider the reality of their situation, spiritually speaking. And God just hammers them with the tragic nature of their situation by making clear that this was entirely preventable, that this was self-inflicted. Israel had been given everything necessary for life, for genuine life, abundant life, but they had, they had forsaken it. In fact, if you look in the middle of our text, there's a mini sort of history lesson where God reminds them of all that they had, all that they sort of had in him. Uh, verses 12 and 13, Jacob fled to the land of Aram, There Israel served for a wife, 
And for a wife, he guarded sheep. That's talking about the story of Jacob, who's also named Israel, who had to guard sheep for Laban so he could marry his, his wife, so he's a shepherd. Then verse 13, by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet, he was guarded. So there's references here to kind of the fathers of the face. Jacob and then Moses isn't mentioned, but that's who he's talking about. Uh, but really the point here is what they are doing. It's the guarded, right? That word guarded. Uh, just as Jacob guarded sheep, God guarded Israel. It's a reminder of the love and care, the, the fact that God is the good shepherd to his people, that he's taken care of them for generations and generations. But then we see the response from the people in verse 14. It says, Ephraim has given bitter provocation. So meaning instead of, instead of the people of God being so thankful, being so appreciative of all that God has done, they have provoked God in, in their own bitterness with their ungrateful attitude, with their rebellious actions. We know, I think, what this looks like in the context of family. Children very often right, do not respond to the, all the love and care of their parents with a sense of gratitude. We know this. We were kids once. We know being young and having a plate of food put down that we didn't cook, that we didn't pay for, and yet looking at it and making a face and complaining about it. We know what it was like to always see the things that are missing in our lives and miss all that is being done for us. We, we know that. And God is, God is their father. He's given them everything. And they've repaid him by ignoring his instructions, taking credit for their own success, and looking to other gods for comfort and help. And all this sin has, is going to have consequences. So the, the rest of verse 14, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Which is the, the, the way that God has been speaking to his people all through Hosea. Look, there's going to be consequences in the future. There's going to be judgment in the future. But then we get to verse 13. And the tense shifts from the future to the past. Right? That's the verse we looked at right away. Uh, Hosea 13.1. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. Already happened. Dead. This would be like going to the doctor's office, him doing a bunch of tests and coming in, looking at his clipboard and saying, well, according to our test, you are dead. <laughs> and you can imagine the person saying that. Doc, I don't, I don't feel dead. Well, we have some pretty accurate tests. Yeah, it looks like your, your heart stopped beating a little while ago. You have been living in death. I think it's just a matter of time before that death to really, you know, show itself. And, the, and you might say, well, doctor, is there anything that I can do? And he would say, of course not. You're dead. You, you don't do anything when you're dead. That, that's how the Bible speaks about spiritual death. Uh, in fact, Paul gives us a very detailed description of, of the state of human beings separated from God in our sin. And he says, we were dead. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 3. And you were dead. And the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And you see the tension there. This is describing people who are doing some things. We're walking in, our, in deadness. Right? Living out of the passion of the flesh. It's, it's describing a life that is, that is somehow alive physically, but definitely dead spiritually. Meaning there's no ability to respond to God, no connection with God. 
We're following the demonic forces of the world, living out of the passions of the flesh under the wrath of God. It's making clear that, that many, many people around us, just the state of humanity is such that they think that they are alive, but in fact they are dead. And there are some of us who have experienced some measure of spiritual life, but are now acting like dead people again, living out of those same sinful passions. And so all of us should be interested to know how exactly the chosen people of God, those who, who, who knew, in a sense, the life that God would bring, had, had seen miracles, I mean, far greater miracles than any one of us have ever seen, and yet they ended up dead spiritually. How did that happen? Is our second point. The causes of death are clear. Uh, James Boyce is a biblical commentator, and uh, I came across this great line from him. He says about these verses, we follow the hand of the divine surgeon as he conducts a spiritual autopsy. I thought that's a great image. So, so helpful, right? Because an autopsy, the, the whole point is to examine a dead body, find the cause of death. And the purpose of that, uh, a lot of the times, is to try to help those who are still alive. We want to find out what killed this person so that other people won't suffer the same fate. Uh, think of asbestos, right? Asbestos seemed like a great thing, right? It stops fire, prevents fire. Let's put it in our homes, put it in our buildings until people started to die of respiratory disease and whatever else. And so they, they realized, look, this is, this is dangerous. It's not good. Same thing with lead. Man, lead so, so, we should make pipes out of lead. That's great, right? It's so easy to work with until people started getting lead poisoning, right? Examining that those who died made those who are alive safer. That's what's going on here in this text. That God wants us to see the death of Israel, examine the causes of death, and then for us be able to, to be prevented or at least know what happened and try to, try to avoid that. So, uh, let's look at the autopsy report that we have in this, in this kind of section. There's a few different causes of death that are highlighted. The first, uh, I'm going to do a combo here, idolatry and sin. One of the primary causes of death for Israel, idolatry and sin. We've seen already a bit of it in verse 1. I'll read it again. But he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. So the essence of sin is that we put a something or someone else in God's place. A lot of the time it's us. That's Adam and Eve, what they did. God spoke to them, gave them commands. They listened but said, you know what, I think I'll make a better decision. I'll be in, in God's place. Uh, but sometimes it's things. That's what Hosea is, is talking about here. In fact, throughout the book, there are things uh, that we deify, that we live for. They become, they become idols. So we should be wondering, how did that happen? How did Israel go from worshiping Yahweh, the living God, to making metal idols and worshiping them? And there's a few different ways this happened, but one of the ones in particular for the northern kingdom here, uh, it was a problem of pragmatism. Uh, pragmatism is, is basically going with what works. Okay, a pragmatic approach means you see a problem, you're going you're gonna to solve it in a practical way, a thing that works kind of in the immediate it brings uh, whatever you're trying to see happen, it, it makes it happen. Uh, Israel, when it's separated into the two kingdoms, they had some problems that needed to be solved. So I have a map for you. And more importantly, I have a laser pointer, which is great. <laughs> so in case you weren't clear, uh, Israel started as a unified kingdom under Saul, under David, Solomon. Then things began to fall apart. 
So up here in the north, 10 tribes formed the kingdom of Israel. And then down here in the south, two of them uh, was Judah. And so they had two kings with very similar names. I don't know why they do this. So up in the north was Jeroboam, King Jeroboam. And the south was King Rehoboam, right? Not confusing at all. Jeroboam was nervous. As soon as this happened, uh, he was nervous because he saw a potential problem, which is that the place of worship was in the south. So here's 1 Kings where he's, he's thinking through the, the problem that this brings. Uh, 1 Kings 12, he says, If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to the Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So he realizes, look, if the people are used to going to the temple, to Jerusalem, to worship, then they're going to keep leaving the northern kingdom. There's going to be no loyalty. They're probably going to kill me. They're probably, it's, going to, it's all going to fall apart. So he thinks of a very pragmatic, very practical solution. And here it is. This is what he says. The next verse. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So what he did, we'll put the map up again. He made two calves of gold and he put them in two places. One of them was up north here in Dan. And the other one was in Bethel, right by the border. So you can imagine as people were thinking, we better go to Jerusalem. There'd be a more convenient place to worship right there. So what a, what a great solution, right? All of the things he was worried about are solved. They can still worship a little differently, but that's not a big deal. They can worship right? And they can stay in the northern kingdom. It was a pragmatic solution, but like many pragmatic solutions, it caused other problems. As you saw, as he was describing it, announcing to the people, all of a sudden, they were not worshiping one god, but they had two gods, multiple gods that they were worshiping. Also, they weren't worshiping in the temple that God had designed. They're worshiping in these high places in um, the different parts of the kingdom. And also, their history is, was changed. You notice he said, here are your gods that brought you up out of Egypt. Remember that, everyone? They're like, was that really them? He just revised history so that people would be more at peace with it. So it's no surprise that this just killed their spiritual life. Okay, they were no longer worshiping the God of life. They were no longer worshiping the one true God. And idolatry took root in the heart of the culture and in the heart of the people. And we should take note of this cause of death. This, this idolatry that came about by pragmatism because I think we can all see that our culture today is probably more pragmatic than back then. That by and large, we live our lives in a way that works. There's a whole YouTube channels on life hacks because we don't want to you know, figure things out. We just want someone to show us the quickest way to do it and we do that. We, we organize our lives in such a way that we are immediately at peace, immediately joyful. It's just going to work for our day. Uh, I remember a, a movie, I just uh, sort of thought of this. Remember that movie about a boy? It's like a long time ago. Hugh Grant's in it. It's a British uh, movie. And he plays this character who's like early 30s, living in London, young single guy, um, no, no attachments. Uh, he, his dad wrote a hit Christmas song that he lives off the royalties of, so he has no job. He has no children. And at the beginning of the movie, he's describing his life. He calls it island living detached from everyone else. And he said, look, island living is tough. You have to know how to organize your life. He says, what I do is I divide my day up into units of time, 30 minutes, not more. More is too overwhelming. 30 minutes. He said, then you can, you can make your schedule. So he's, for example, one unit taking a bath, right? Put that in the morning. Uh, two units watching TV. 
three units going for exercise, four units getting your hair done. He says, by the end of the day, your, your day's filled up. You feel like you're, you're satisfied, you've accomplished something. And I think that's a good picture of kind of how we are, right? We have calendars, not that it's bad to calendar, don't hear me wrong, I'm just saying that we compartmentalize, figure out what is gonna work for each and every day. And we can do this also with spiritual things. You could probably cram in your Bible reading and prayer into one unit, right? Get that done in the morning, check, right? On a Sunday, church, two units, maybe three if the preacher goes long, right? Check that off. Hey, I'm trying not to. That, that listen, is not necessary. Each of those things that we would organize, that's, there's nothing necessarily wrong with them, but the approach is problematic because the approach is based on what will work for the immediate things that I want to see happen in my life. It's very different than approaching your life with a sense of what, what will be faithful to God? What will glorify God as I think about how I spend my time and my energy? And the real problem will come if we're, if we're thinking pragmatically is that there will come many moments in our lives where we have to make a choice between being faithful to God and doing what works. And that's where Jeroboam was. He had this new kingdom. He had all these things he wanted to see happen, which was mostly that they would stay strong, that his king would, kingship would be made strong. And so we had a choice between being pragmatic or being faithful. And when he chose pragmatism, idolatry took off because he did whatever it took to try to make things work in the moment without thinking of who they actually were as the people of God. So that was one of the causes of death. Idolatry, sin, that came about because of a pragmatic approach. But there's another reason why they couldn't see this really happening. And that was because of pride. The other main cause of death is pride. We see this in the first couple of verses. Verses 7 and 8 of chapter 12. Describing Israel, God says, They are a merchant in whose hands are false balances. He loves to oppress Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself and all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. So these verses are just dripping with pride, right? They're cheating each other in financial transactions. They're oppressing each other. They are thinking that they are the source of wealth in their lives. And they're boasting about no one being able to find any sin. Doesn't mean there is any sin. They just can't find it. They're, they're covering it up so much. And what we see here is, is a distortion. The distortion that comes or when we allow pride to gain a foothold in our lives. See, pride, it warps our perspective so that we seem very large, very wise, very important, and everyone else around us seems very small. Even God seems very small. And this is lethal for our soul because the more that we operate in pride, the less and less we're able to see what's actually going on. Our, we get bigger and bigger, our sense of self-importance, sense of wisdom, sense of self-righteousness gets very, very big and we don't need God anymore and we can treat people however we want because we're the smartest person in the room. I think, uh, I think it's fair to say that if you're married here, uh, you have experienced this, especially in the early uh, days of your marriage. So what tends to happen is that as single people, we have, we have pride, but it's, it's sort of under the surface because uh, we are pretty good at living lives that seem nice and kind and godly. And especially when we meet someone, right? When we date someone, we meet someone else who also seems nice and kind and godly, and we think this is going to be great. We're going to marry each other. We're going to have a relationship that is full of niceness and kindness and godliness. This is going to be fantastic. And then we get married, and all of a sudden, we're fighting, and we're angry, and we're frustrated, disappointed. What happened? How they changed so much. Since we got married, how did that, that happen? We can't see that, that 
they didn't actually change that much. And neither, neither did we. We both had this pride that was simmering under the surface. And the problem is we both have these large views of ourselves. When we try to bring them together under one roof, there's no, there's no room. We keep bashing into each other. We keep offending each other. We keep getting offended. The only hope is that we would be humbled. That we would, we would deflate our sense of self. And genuinely learn to understand and to love each other. Or, or we can stay proud. We can ruin our marriage and we can end up farther and farther away from God. And the Israelites had chosen the second option over and over and over again for generations to the point that they were, they were warped, fundamentally distorted as a people. And you can see this. You can see God trying to tell them this uh, in these verses, but it's actually in the first word. That first word, merchant, doesn't seem like that big a deal. It's like a, some two trades. But in the Hebrew, that word is actually Canaan. So if you were to read it in the Hebrew, it would say, hey, Israel, you are a Canaan in whose hands are false balances. And to be a Canaan, God's saying, you are, you are no longer like my people. You're like the Canaanites. The Canaanites were the pagan, godless people that were cast out of the promised land. And so God's saying to them, look, you've completely betrayed completely forsaken the purpose and the identity that I gave you. You were to be a light in this dark world and now you've embraced the darkness. You were supposed to live for my glory. Now you're living for yourselves. You were supposed to be set apart from the world and yet now you are exactly like the rest of the people. And there's nothing worse, nothing more grievous than someone who claims to be one of God's people but just lives like the world. I was reminded of this. I went to a funeral a few months ago someone who I was kind of just loosely connected with. I went to a funeral that was in a building that was a church building, it had a cross on the roof, had Bible verses on the wall, but in the entire hour-long service, the person presiding over the funeral never mentioned God, never mentioned Jesus. At a time when people were there thinking about the eternal state of the human soul, life and death, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ was never mentioned. The hope that the church is supposed to be about was never, never mentioned. See, look, it's one thing to be spiritually dead. Many people all over the world have just rejected God, turned their back on God. That's, that's their choice. That's where they are. But if you are someone who claims to be a person of God and you're spiritually dead, it's not just wrong. It's, it's dangerous. It's harmful. It's, it's malignant. It's like a, a cancerous cell that's going to grow it's going to expand. It's going to cause death in others because you will give people the impression that you can have the hope of God just by having some sense of spirituality that, that claims to be sort of Christian in some way but isn't actually tied to the God of the Bible or to Jesus himself. So if our message as a Christian church or as individual followers of Christ is just like the world, we're, we're just passing out lifeboats with holes in it or people are going to end up dead because they think that we were pointing them to life. And those were the Israelites. They were supposed to be a beacon of light and life in the world. And because of the sins of idol worship and pride, they, they had died spiritually. And in that death, they had led others astray. And what we see in the rest of our passage here is they had begun to decay morally. Uh, they, they had descended farther and farther into sin to the point that they committed the most heinous acts imaginable. We can see this in the rest of verse 2. I'll, I'll read it again. Now they, and now they sin more and more, 
and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. If you're here in the fall, Ezra Okoti was here preaching, a pastor from Northview, and he was speaking about Baal worship and, and the human sacrifice that was a component of it. And he gave this just horrendous description of what would happen. He said they would build these metal uh, statues, these idols that they would worship, but what they would do is they would sometimes build a fire at the foot of the statue, and they would stoke the fire all day so that the metal would get hotter and hotter and hotter so that by nightfall it would be glowing red hot. You would see it off in the distance. And then they, they would come in this, in this vile ceremony and they would pray to this God and they would take one of their children and they would place it on the hands of this burning God and they would sacrifice their children. The thing that I was thinking about when I heard Ezra speak about that is how is it that, that God's people were involved in that? How is it that the Israelites had descended to, to that kind of a place where they actually sacrificed their children to appease these other gods? I bet none of them ever thought that would have been possible when they crossed the Red Sea. Right? No one thought that that would have been possible when they crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land, when the walls of Jericho fell down, when the glory of God descended on the tabernacle and the temple I mean, no one thought that this was going to happen for these people. Even Jeroboam, King Jeroboam, when he put up those calves, he didn't think probably this is where it would lead. But the point is that that's what happens with sin and idolatry. That's what happens. We, we die spiritually and then we begin to decay. We always think that sin will stay small and stay manageable, but it never does. It always takes root and, and it grabs us and, and twists us and contorts us and brings us deeper and deeper into, into wickedness. Idols always demand more of us than, they, than we think they will. And because it happens incrementally, we come to a place where we're willing to do and say things that we never, we never thought we would do. And because of our pride, because of the, the twistedness of our mind, because the darkness has become our life, we don't see it. We're dead. And, and we're committing vile, heinous acts in our mind, and our heart. We're hurting the people around us. And we still feel justified in it. This is the nature of idolatry. This is what it does, and we're all guilty of it to some extent. And the end of this life ends not just with spiritual death and physical death, but, but everything substantial and meaningful is gone from our lives. Look, look at how it's described. This is the last verse, verse uh, three. It says of Israel, Therefore they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like the smoke from a window. We blow away like tiny, worthless pieces of nothing. And that's the end of the autopsy report. That's, that's God's description of his people at this stage in their journey. And I'm tempted just to, to leave it there. And for us to simply go from this place contemplating the weight of sin, contemplating what it is that, that we do when we are separated from God, in the hopes that the Spirit of God might bring conviction, that we might see more clearly those areas of darkness that we've just thought is small and going to stay small, those closed doors in our mind and our heart that we haven't wanted to open and we just think we'll leave them closed, everything will be fine. I think there could be some real value 
and just letting this, this sit in our minds and hearts, thinking about the depravity and death that comes from it, and then coming back next week and seeing the way that God is able to lift that weight off of our souls. I think that would be helpful, but I was reminded uh, of a story that I heard uh, of a pastor long ago. His name's D.L. Moody. was sort of in a similar situation. Uh, he was a pastor in Chicago in the uh, late 1800s, and uh, he began to preach a series of sermons in the evening at a place called Farewell Hall. This was in 1871. And uh, after five Sundays of kind of building, more and more people came back. It was the thing to do on a Sunday night. By the fifth Sunday, the, the place was packed, just, just jam-packed. And his topic was a lot like our topic from Easter. The, the topic of his sermon was, what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? spent the whole sermon talking about that, who Jesus is, how should we respond. But at the close of the service, he did not, he did not tell them to make a decision. Here's what he said. He said, I wish you would take this text home with you and turn it over in your minds during the week. And the next Sabbath, we will come to Calvary and we will decide what to do with Jesus of Nazareth. You can imagine him thinking, this, this is good. We'll go away, the Holy Spirit will work in the hearts and minds of the people, we'll come back and we'll, we'll bring an answer. We'll come to the place of doing business with the Lord. But afterwards he said, this, he considered this to be the greatest mistake of his life. Because between those two Sundays, the great fire of Chicago broke out and, and burned the city to a ground. In fact, as they left Farewell Hall, they could see flames beginning in the distance. And before long, uh, everything was burned. 17,000 structures, houses, uh, buildings were, were burned. 100,000 people left homeless. And no one came back the next Sunday. No one came back to here. Uh, Moody himself and his family, they, they were homeless. And so reflecting back on that, like years later, here's what he said. He said, I want to tell you uh, of one lesson I learned that night, which I have never forgotten. And that is when I preach, I press Christ upon people then and there and try to bring, bring them to a decision on the spot. I would rather have that right hand cut off than, give, than to give an audience now a week to decide what to do with Jesus. And I think his point holds true to this day. Because we don't know what's going to happen between now and next Sunday. We don't, I mean, fire is probably not going to ravage our town, but, but all manner of things could prevent us from coming back. And the worst of those things would be that we could die. And if any one of us is spiritually dead and then we die physically, we will endure death forever, eternal death, a death of suffering, a death of, of being forever separated from God. So before we go, we need one more point, and it's this. Only Jesus can save us from death. Only Jesus can save us from death. And we see an inkling of this even way back in the book of Hosea. I'm going to give you the first verse for next week, okay? Verse 4. After everything he said about his people, all of the, the death that they are experiencing and the causes of death, he says this, but, but I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt, you know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. He's saying, though we choose death on a daily basis, though we reject the God who made us, though we cultivate a life of pragmatism, just seeking what works, denying God, though we provoke him, with the way that we live our lives for the things of this world, with our pride, with our entitlement, though some of us have made a travesty of his name, calling ourselves his followers, even though we clearly follow the world, God has not rejected us. God has not abandoned us. He hasn't forgotten us. In fact, he has kept and is keeping the covenant of grace that he has established through the death and resurrection of Christ. 
And God intends to bring life where there is death. He intends to bring the knowledge of God for those who have forgotten him. And it all happens through Jesus, who is the Savior. Besides him, there is no other. So I would say to you, for everyone here, why leave this place dead when you can leave this place alive? Why leave this place with a sense of the foreboding consequences of sin that are coming for us when you can go from this place lifted up in Christ? Even for those of us who know the Lord, if we are allowing sin to to percolate and to grow in our lives, why not leave this place having our conscience clear? And especially if we've never named the name of Jesus and come to faith, why not let today be the day when you would say, Jesus, I, I need you. I don't understand everything, but what I know is that there is sin in my life and I believe that you died for it and that you rose again and that in that there is genuine life, a life that conquers death, a life that will lead us to God himself. So let me end with that prayer and may God do that work in us today. Lord Jesus, we do pray these things. It's so clear from from Adam and Eve to today that we are a people whose hearts and minds are are constantly given over to corruption, to a sense of self-importance, self-reliance. Lord, our lives are, are filled with things that just seem to work in the moment. And we're satisfied with that. But God, may, may we not be blind to where that leads. Please help us, Lord. Help us to take seriously those, those little tiny idols that have taken hold of our life that are only going to grow. Please help us, Lord, to see those areas of darkness that we have not wanted to shine your light into. Please help us, Lord, to confess our sin both to you and to the people in our lives that we might have genuine life. Lord, I pray especially for those here this morning who have not made a a, a declaration of faith. I pray that you would do the work to bring them to the point of seeing their need for you, like all of us have. And God, that your spirit would would bring out of their minds and hearts the, the confidence in knowing Jesus that just as you've been raised from the dead, we also will be raised, that we can have that life. And so please, Lord, please, for your glory, for our good, would you move in us? Would you help us to be a people and a church that doesn't just speak the name of Jesus, but lives it and knows it, and that as people know us, they would, they would come to see their need for you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.